Good morning. It is a joy to continue this Advent series uh, to uh, unpack uh, what it means to start the Christian year, uh, not with Christmas per se, uh, not with Christ's first Advent, as joyful as that is and as wonderful as it is to reflect on uh, the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh uh, and, and, and really and truly, uh, not in a metaphorical way, not in a theoretical way, but in a blood and guts way, very fiber of our being way, becoming like us. And as glorious as that is, the wisdom of the church has been historically to say, no, actually, we start each year with an expectation of His return. We look forward to the King's return to us that all of the promises of the kingdom might be yes and amen, and in the meantime, to be encouraged and to be exhorted and to be reminded that even in the midst of the weight and pressure of a year that feels so much to various uh, uh, ones of us, that darkness and the kingdom ethic seem so far away, whether through personal battles and sadness and disappointment and hurt, whether fears on an international or a local level, politically, socially, environmentally, we can feel as if the not yet is stronger than the already when we think about the kingdom of God. And it is, uh, again, a reminder that what we're preparing for is a right understanding of Christmas and who is born. And uh, every once in a while, it's useful to, to remind ourselves that Christ is not a name, it's a title. And for us, sometimes it's more useful to translate it as king. It is the translation. It is king. And Christmas is the mass of the king. That is the worship service where we reflect on the king himself by breaking bread together. In the Lord's Supper. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the King's service. A worship service oriented towards the King. And there is no better way to prepare for Christmas than to be reminded of who the King is. What He brings. What He secures. It's like uh, living in a city where the King came, established certain things within our city and said, this is who I am and this is what we do. If you're a citizen in my empire, this is how we interact. This is the economics. This is the way justice is done. This is the way we care for the poor. And then the king left and went to the imperial city and sits on his throne, but he says, I will come back. The empire is established and the ascension of Christ is somewhat like, uh, if we were using the Roman Empire, he went to Rome for a while. And he is king and he is ruling. And we are out here in the provinces called to live out and embrace the ethics of our king. The ethics he came to establish. And someday he's coming back. And he's going to see the work we have done in living out and embodying that ethic in a city he loves, a city that he came to save. This morning, uh, we will unpack this a little more, looking at uh, what it means to see with the eyes of wisdom 
the promise and the hope of who John was, who Jesus is, and therefore what the kingdom is about. And hopefully be encouraged in what it means for us in small ways, in local ways, in those small moments with one another to live out the nature of the kingdom. So let's put the text in front of us. We're going to read Matthew uh, chapter 11. We'll read verses 2 through 11. Hear now God's word. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the king, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect or look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings uh, in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he whom it was written, Behold, I send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those who have been born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord God, we're grateful that this is, for many of us, a familiar passage. We pray, Lord, that in its rich familiarity, we might be renewed in our ability to see you, see you in the midst of the already and the not yet, the reality that you are firmly enthroned in the imperial city and that you have good plans and will establish good things for all who live under your reign and rule. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it might encourage your people in what it is to live under your rule and reign, to embrace the freedom that comes from your calling of love. And we ask, Lord, that whatever is said this morning that is not true, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. And so we have a challenge sometimes in, uh, in perception, right? Seeing is not always uh, believing. Uh, it's just sadly not true. Uh, I wish it was, uh, but the reality is the whole way that magicians make their living is that they have you watch something that they do and then they trick your eyes. And you, what you think you're seeing is not exactly what is happening. It's the sleight of hand. It's the way in which perception isn't always a reality. It's the truth that we can look at the same circumstance from a different perspective or without context. 
How many times have uh, we been troubled by the fact that maybe well-intentioned people trying to make a political point will edit out, say, the beginning and the end of a video and then upload it to the internet, which makes something look horribly abusive, but may not actually be. Not because it doesn't happen, but because in that particular case it didn't, but it might have been useful to prove someone's pre-existing presupposition. There are all kinds of ways that seeing isn't always believing. Propaganda is designed to show us wonderful pictures of what could be or what should be in the midst of something completely different. Nothing is more uh, tragic and horrific than seeing things like uh, propaganda pictures of happy, fun families in North Korea where they're starving to death. Right? We know that seeing is not always an accurate picture. And certainly what we bring to the table, our presuppositions make what we see sometimes not what is really there. And in a biblical perspective, that's called blindness. And what we're trying to do, what we're cultivating in our uh, thoughts about Advent is the ability to increasingly see through the lens of the gospel and less through the lenses which are regularly presented to us, consciously or unconsciously, in our culture, inside and outside the church. Again, we have to remember that Jesus' entire ministry is not in Rome, but in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Galilee pleading with people inside the religious community that should have known and seen Him for who He was. You see, one of the things that Advent reminds us is the first place that needs to be restored and rejuvenated is the vision of God's people. So often we can be tempted throughout the year to just believe that if those knuckleheads out in the world would believe what we believe, things would be better. But there is, in the richness of God's calling, the ability for His people to lead in their own repentance, in their own humility and recognition that we too need to be reminded so that we can see well. Our eyes and ears need to be healed by the gospel. It is in that reality that we enter into a story where God's people are struggling with whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the King. And in fact, not is it just all of the people in Israel who've come in contact with Jesus, but really troublingly, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist who is sitting in a jail at this point, and he's hearing certain things about what Jesus is doing, and it's troubling to him. It doesn't seem to fit John's notion. And maybe John is just simply motivated by the fact that he's like, look, if Jesus, my cousin, is the king, and I'm still doing time, when is he going to take Herod out so that I can be freed? And not that John was looking for a cushy job, but at least not prison, right? I mean, if your cousin is the king, you're expecting you probably shouldn't be doing time for simply criticizing the king that was opposed to Jesus, Herod. And that whole circumstance where all John had done was point to the fact that Herod had married his brother, which was rather poor form, a brother's wife, we should add that part of it, brother's wife, uh, and 
recognizing that that was really not what should have happened. And Herod's wife was a little offended by being reminded that she'd been previously married to Herod's brother. And so she suggested that maybe Herod put John away. We know in the end that John isn't going to be liberated this side of glory. That even as we talk about the fact that Jesus is going to say, prisoners are being freed, and John's going, that'd be great. That whatever Jesus does and how the kingdom evolves doesn't necessarily mean it works in exactly the way we want to see it happen. Our eyes to see what the king is doing takes time and it takes a challenge. And it's a challenge to the way we expect to see things. So we're going to start the sermon, first of all, by asking the question, why would we find Jesus offensive? Why does Jesus bother saying in verse 6, blessed is the person who does not find me offensive? Then we'll look at what it means uh, to embrace the folly of wealth and power. Find clothes in a king's palace. And then finally, what a difference Jesus really makes. So first... Uh, What do we see? Because apparently there is the opportunity to see Jesus and be terribly offended by him. Now we sometimes, you know, that seems like a bad time of year to think about being offended by Jesus because this is the time of year when we think of him as small and uh, and John-like. How many times do you have a child be slightly agitated and then the pastor holds him and baptizes him and he gets calm? Truly in sync with the Spirit. We expect good things from John. But that infant, right? Children, year old, gosh, you just don't want to find them offensive. They can't be offensive. But they grow up. And they start talking. And then their mothers get confused, as Mary did, about what on earth Jesus was talking about. And asking him occasionally if he wouldn't just come home and maybe be a little less so controversial. And John, who embraces Jesus and sees him and is led by the Spirit and has the, has the, the vision, as all those gathered there did, of the Holy Spirit coming down in the dove and the voice. Peter says, I was there when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Everyone heard that. John, the Baptist, heard that. And it isn't so much that John is offended, but certainly many have been offended. And in fact, many in Jesus' audience were offended. What were they offended by? And in context, what was Jesus saying that he was concerned they might find offensive? Now again, we hear these passages so often. We love Isaiah 35. I encourage you to take the uh, encouragement and uh, Exhortation of our sister Amy to read Isaiah 35 regularly throughout the Advent season and throughout the church year. It is an amazing poem and prophetic vision uh, to be sure. And Jesus here quotes that. What is the sign of the kingdom? Well, Jesus says, uh, look, go tell John what you see. Now, interestingly enough, seeing here is in these short series of verses referenced six times. This is a seeing passage. So what do you see? Well, the blind receive sight. Well, that's wonderful. 
How can that be offensive? Well, you jump to John chapter 9, verse 2, and Jesus' own disciples asked the question about the man born blind who sinned. His mother or his father. There is an assumption uh, that perhaps uh, bad things happen to bad people and bad things shouldn't happen to, quote, good people. Therefore, if something bad is happening to this person, they must have done something bad. Somebody somewhere did something and we all know that there is a reckoning and it rolls downhill and therefore, who sinned? And Jesus' response uh, is not that God blinded this guy so that Jesus could do a magic trick. But it is to reinforce the reality that when the king comes, vision will be restored and that he's going to reverse the consequences of the fall. That this man's blindness, though a product of a fallen world, Jesus' glory is shown in that when he steps into that fallen world, he begins to reverse its realities. And so it's not about who's good and bad. All have fallen short and fall, uh, of the glory of God. It is a God who is going to restore His people despite their fallenness. And when we do math and when we want to compare ourselves to those around us, the unconditional love of the gospel, when it really starts to apply to people, we're not sure it should. Now, we have a whole group of people that we would love to know Jesus. And then there are concentric circles out that we... We're just not as sure or as interested, and some of them would really be troubling, especially because we feel like they should probably feel God's justice more than they should feel God's mercy. And so in every culture, we are not the first ones to assume that brokenness in a person's life is an indication of sin, and therefore maybe justice rather than mercy should be their lot. We can be offended by the mercy of God. Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. But then uh, we have this idea that, uh, that there are also lepers being healed. Now, that's a good thing, right? So people can come into the presence of God. And so lepers being cleansed is a good indication of the kingdom. But as we know uh, from another passage, that uh, healing lepers doesn't mean that they're always terribly grateful. So Jesus heals ten lepers. Only one of them comes back to thank Him. Awkwardly, uh, of the ten, He's the only Samaritan and the nine Jews don't come back. Jesus has a way of telling these stories with a rather pointed uh, application. But that's not uncommon for us, right? We tend to think that people should uh, respond well to our grace and our mercy, uh, to our healing and to our generosity. And what is offensive about Jesus, though he does expect that they should have come back and thanked him, he didn't hold back the healing from the nine, but he heals all ten. His generosity is not dependent upon the ability of those who receive His generosity to respond well to it. They may not. One of the things that's interesting when we go through training with safe families is that uh, there are these uh, charts that we look at to help inform us about the different way in which people who are born into cycles of poverty think. 
that are different than the way middle-class people think and the way that people who are born into great wealth think. And there are simply different ways in which people view money and time and resources. And it's a challenge to understand different ways of thinking. We have a tendency to assume our way of thinking is everyone's way of thinking. And what's awkward at certain points, though, is that uh, our instructors often feel somewhat uh, apologetic in their talking about how folks who have experienced generational poverty and suffering, some of them injustice on a number of levels, might respond to our acts of kindness. A needing to say, you know, um, not all people are poor are lazy. Now, it just strikes you as odd that our instructors would have to tell us that. But in our culture, we have embraced those parts of Scripture where it says things like, look at the ant. See how hard it works. And we have a tendency to think that, therefore, those who aren't self-sufficient, must somehow, by definition, be lazy. And it takes training for us to understand that, no, actually there are factors many of us have never, I've never had to deal with, let me just put me, I've never had to deal with, that create disincentives to working, disincentives to effort, having had things taken away. The stories, uh, some of them older, of course, of, you know, the African-American guy who works hard uh, and finally buys a mule, and uh, his neighbor, who hadn't worked hard, is a little offended, and so, uh, who's white, and so he goes and kills the guy's mule because he wants everything to stay equal. And the young African-American boy who sees his dad lose his donkey or his mule and no uh, police come and help might lose a little bit of motivation about how hard you work. It doesn't matter how hard you work, they'll take it away from you. And that's not just true of those circumstances. It's true uh, of people who invest white or black in in property and don't understand all the rules or read the fine print uh, in the banking uh, loans that they read, that they sign. And they're working hard, and then one day they can't meet their bills because it doesn't rain. And they lose their land, and they lose it for several generations. And the motivation that knocks people down, some people, generation after generation, and just the fact that we don't know or understand, to give us the grace to see To see what poverty is in each circumstance and to not missee because of our presuppositions the difficulties that people find themselves in. But Jesus comes whether they are blind or lame or lepers and extends grace and mercy. Do those who receive it have to do business with God to be sure? But the vision of the kingdom and the offense of Jesus is that he doesn't always do it strategically in such a way that it always gets the end result we want. 
Not everybody responds great to Jesus. Not everybody thanks Him. Not everybody ends up on His team. Not everybody gives glory to Him this side of glory. And you and I will not always receive accolades when we care for one another in the body or whether we care for people outside. We won't always be appreciated. We will do it badly and we will do it well and still not be appreciated. And that is just the nature of what it is to live out the kingdom of God. Jesus' generosity is offensive. And it's also not for sale. What I mean by that is that Jesus ministers. And the hard thing is that for us as His servants, as His children, as His friends, as John the Baptist learned, it doesn't always mean that He will get us out of every jam. Most of the apostles died violently. John, the Baptist, dies violently on the whim at a birthday party as a birthday gift. Can be anything be more absurd and wrong to have Elijah, the second Elijah, coming to declare the way of the Lord, lose his head because a young lady can dance well and didn't know what to ask for for her birthday? If you think about it at all, it is an obscene way to die. Pointless. How can this be a victory? What had he done for Jesus? He baptized him. He laid the way for him. He was the one who shouted into the wilderness, come and see the glory of our God. And he dies what seems to be a pointless and absurd death at the hands of a despot too drunk to make a good decision. The kingdom is not for sale. The way you and I see things and fairness, our limited perspective of this world will blind us to the realities of God who is making all things new. And His love and His mercy is not for sale. But I need to move on because the resurrection and the truth is that this world isn't all there is and that the short-term victories, and this is the second point, my stars, uh, is that uh, we see the folly of wealth and power. People are out there asking questions. They're asking questions of John the Baptist. They come out to him to get baptized. They're asking Jesus questions. They know that Herod is not a great guy. They know that the Sadducees are getting rich off of the temple sacrifices. They know that the sellouts, the tax collectors who were Jewish folks, are getting rich, but nobody likes them. There's a certain way in which we all are aware that power and wealth, although it seems to provide a measure of comfort, also creates isolation and never delivers what it promises. We know that. We know the Lee Iacocca uh, quote. You're right. No, nobody ever lies on their deathbed and says, I wish I would have spent more time at work. And yet then we kind of reflect and we go, yeah, but it was a nice deathbed. Right? It's better than dying under a bridge, having your deathbed be a sewer. At least you had a deathbed, so maybe I should work a little bit. I mean, we qualify it, but we know in our hearts that money and security don't come from power and, uh, and what we can achieve. It has to come from someplace else. We're asking the question. That's why people are following Jesus around. Of course they're attracted. Of course at some point we know that Herod... And his power 
is fleeting. That he is, and this is the irony, is that uh, we all know that, that Herod, that this allusion to the, the, the reed is because Herod's symbol on his coin was a Judean reed. And so this is a way in which Jesus is absolutely saying, I've come here to undermine Herod and all like him. So what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see an earthly king, a little reed blowing in the wind? Somebody who's got their picture on a coin? Did you go see a, a wonderful, comfortable individual? No, you went to go see the prophet. You know something has to change. You know that it cannot be the short-term power of money and politics that will provide wealth. I need to see wisdom. And this is what Paul, uh, this is what Jesus is emphasizing. This isn't just physical sight. It's the sight that comes from wisdom, of knowing the fullness. It's not just that there are Proverbs that say, the uh, fool says uh, that I don't have to work and that I'll just uh, roll over. There may be a lion outside my house, so I'll go to work tomorrow. It's also the same Proverbs that says that the poor work hard and injustice sweeps it away. And that I've got to be wise enough to tell the difference between those who need to be encouraged to get up and work because they can and those who need to be encouraged in a different way because oppression has swept away all their efforts. I've got to be wise in understanding the times and what's around me. Jesus wants our eyes to be open so that we can see not just that power and wealth in verses 7 through 9 are fleeting, but what the answer is. What is deeper and more secure in an ultimate and an eternal sense. And even now, than money and power. What is the wisdom? Well, we see the difference that Jesus makes in verse 11. Jesus is the difference. John the Baptist is born. He's the greatest of all that went before him. Faithful prophet. Jesus says that he knew God. He was the epitome of the best that had happened prior to Jesus. The analogy might be something uh, like this. A um, hundred years ago, 12 12 years ago, maybe, I don't know, you could have somebody who was an amazing scholar and knew history and politics and, and uh, would be a great counselor and would know stuff that nobody else would know because they had a photographic memory and they'd read all of these books and they had all these resources and you would want somebody with that kind of brain power and experience next to you because you didn't want to have to go and find all of those books. He knew, she knew all of those books. Now I have an iPhone. There's a certain way in which all of those resources can be at my fingertips. I can ask it almost any question, and within a moment, I can have that information. The analogy is simply this, is that, is that because of Jesus, the access to and the presence, it's a, it's a seismic shift. John is the best that there was when all we had was books, no telephones, no way to share information in a quick fashion, he was the best that there was. And now Jesus has come. And resources and information and the Holy Spirit and the power of kingdom has exponentially changed. That the least, again, I still want somebody who's well-versed in history reading stuff off of Wikipedia and telling me what is not exactly correct. We still need wisdom, but the least in the kingdom of heaven, somebody like me with an iPhone still can know more than John ever knew about 
creation and about science and about 15 other things that John just never was called to learn. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It, it is exponentially more because of what Jesus has done. Two things. What has Jesus done? He's been resurrected. Death has been defeated. John's execution is no longer the last word on John the Baptist. It was Herod's futile last attempt to exert control over a man he never could. Because God was for John, so who could be against him? John the Baptist rises with his head firmly attached, always knowing in the end where his Savior was and who his king was. Herod died thinking he was king. He couldn't see, he didn't know. Resurrection's no good to Herod. But then Pentecost. Not only does a resurrection answer whether or not Paul's martyrdom was futile or John's martyrdom or Peter's or Stephen's, but the Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out. What does it mean to really and truly know that God lives within us in a way that is somehow different than before the resurrection? Yes, the Spirit was present in the Old Testament. Yes, that's how the Old Testament saints spoke and knew and prophesied. Amen. But something different happens. I will pour out my Spirit and your young men and young women will dream dreams. What is our dream? Do we see the power of the Spirit ministering one to another Reaching out in love, not counting the costs in the way that humans count the costs, but in the sure knowledge that even the most futile of efforts in Christ can be resurrection in the making, can be Pentecost in the making. The Holy Spirit poured out. There are no wasted efforts, there are no small actions in the kingdom. It is the offense of knowing that loving that one person who was in need is a sign of God, a sign of the kingdom. It is the loving of that one leper, the healing of that one blind man or woman, the showing the dignity to those who are created in the image of God. When we see that that is what Jesus enriches, empowers, and codifies as kingdom ethics because he has risen and because he has poured out his spirit. The kingdom is not about grand things in the way that humans do. It is about those wonderful, simple things we do for our neighbors, letting God build the increase and bring his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Again, thank you for the offense of the gospel. Lord, thank you that you do not simply point us to earthly power and tell us to go get it. But you point us to the caring of letting the little children come to you and building your kingdom from there. Lord, may we trust your wisdom. May we see it time and again. In Christ's name, amen.